Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. Uh, this is going to be a continuation of my series of discussions on the way that Christ reigns in the church in her liturgical tradition and through the Spirit, uh, practically speaking, in our prayers. So this is scripted, interspersed with comments that I make off the cuff uh, based on what I'm discussing in the script. Uh, and uh, it proceeds with a biblically rooted theology that is interpreted in a strongly liturgical sense, that is, everything in Scripture has some kind of significance to the liturgy, uh, because Scripture actually is best understood as a liturgical text. Um, and it will unfold into something which I think has a great deal of practical significance in understanding why prayer is important and why prayer for those close to us is important. You know, it's not just we pray for those whom we know because, you know, those are the people whom we happen to be aware of, but there's actually an ontological connection with those people with whom we are close that functions to make our prayer for them particularly important. Uh, before kicking off the uh, this particular discussion, I do want to mentioned that with respect to the Space Trilogy series, my decision is that uh, for $5 and up, you will have access to the whole chapter-by-chapter chapter discussion of the Space Trilogy series. So now the $5 tier is a level of premium content. Uh, I would say probably about a third of the chapter-by-chapter chapter discussions will be uploaded for general consumption. The goal is actually to keep making the same amount of um, videos which are available to patrons and non-patrons alike and kind of um, add on the premium level content uh, in addition to that pre-existing content because premium level content um, as it pertains to uh, kind of the details of the text won't require uh, the kind of powerpoints that you know, doing a kind of systematic lecture uh, requires. But we'll see how that unfolds. Uh, the $10 tier uh, is the tier which will guarantee you at this point access to all premium content. Um, I do have, I know I, I really have wished that I could have done more by this point in terms of the interviews, uh, but I do have a couple things in the works, a couple scholars, a couple individuals who I think you'll, you'll really enjoy hearing from. I don't want to drop the name just yet, but... I think uh, you will be happy with whom I have on. Okay, so let's continue with our discussion. Okay, so if you haven't seen the last video, um, you should watch the last video before uh, getting to this one. So we've just discussed how uh, God upholds the creation in this double motion or this uh, double pattern of outwards procession and inwards reversion. So this is the Dionysian term for it. But we can also think of it in terms of divine descent and then human ascent. Okay. So God comes down to us in his glory and by that cloud in which he comes down, we ascend back up to him. A useful image for this is the sacrificial imagery. The fire of the divine glory is that which consumes the sacrifice on the altar in the ascension offering, which is often called the whole burnt offering, but the actual word means ascension offering. The entire sacrificial 
animal is consumed in the divine fire, not because the word means home burnt, but because the kind of offering that it is, is one where the Israelite worshiper is ascending into the presence of God by proxy. So what happens is you have to divide the animal into pieces first. This is very consistent with the theme that we see in Genesis. For example, Genesis chapter 2, Adam is divided into two pieces. Then he's reunited back together with in a new form, in a glorified form. And he ceases to be strictly Adam, which comes from the dust. But he is now Ish, which comes from the word fire. Esh is fire. Ish is uh, the word for man that is used after Isha or woman is created. Likewise, we see Abraham divides the animals in two in Genesis chapter 15. Then he goes into a deep sleep. The first time this word has been used since Genesis chapter 2. And while in a deep sleep, a torch, uh, the divine fire, passes between the parts of the animals, sealing them back together. And in fact, the word for torch here is an unusual word used only one other place in the Pentateuch, and that is the divine lightning, which comes down on Mount Sinai. Uh, so the theme of dividing and then stitching back together is a crucial one if we're thinking liturgically, if we're thinking in terms of our access to the presence of God and the continued participation of the people in the definitive events of the Abrahamic and Sinai covenants takes place in the liturgical and the sacrificial system. So they lean on the sacrificial animal. They thereby identify themselves with that animal. Uh, the animal is killed, which is their death by proxy. The animal is divided into different pieces. Parts of it are washed, constituting its baptism. And then its glorification is when fire from the altar, it's the fire representing the divine glory, the uncreated fire. The fire comes and consumes the entire animal, creating a single cloud of smoke. So there is death in the flesh and life in the spirit. The smoke signifies the spirit. There are multiple pieces of the animal. It's been divided sacrificially, but the glory of God consumes it and makes it all of one piece in a single ascending cloud of smoke. We see this happening in another set of imagery in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, or probably better rendered, the Day of Coverings. Uh, this is Israel's version of a very uh, widespread liturgical ritual, liturgical tradition, which I believe was given to Noah because it just appears everywhere. Uh, this tradition appears in like the Babylonian New Year. Uh, it appears in the border sacrifice in ancient China. Uh, essentially, it's a rite of renewal of uh, the death and resurrection of the king who represents his entire nation and this process of death and resurrection brings him into the heavenly court and it is only in the heavenly court from the king of kings that he acquires any legitimacy whatsoever to rule. Now this is expressed in, uh, in different idioms in different cultures but it really is remarkable if you start to read through the evidence that we have from these various different liturgical systems from around the world, just how intelligible they are if you know biblical theology pretty well. So that process wherein God descends in order to create an ascent, he builds his ladder down so we can climb the ladder up, that process is described in the Dionysian corpus 
uh, as precession and reversion. And what we showed is that this precession and reversion, this outward extension, and then this reception back inwards, this isn't just something that's particular to creation. It's not just how God engages with the world. Instead, what it does is it reflects the pattern of God's own infinite and eternal communion among the divine persons themselves. So the Father is always extending himself to embrace the Son. The Son is always receiving that embrace. And then the Son is always reciprocating that embrace and thus carrying back the love of the Father to the heart of the Father by the Holy Spirit. And that's procession and reversion with respect to creation on the one hand, with respect to the Trinity on the other. So now, let's return to what the book of Exodus describes. The Passover, or Pascha, uh, is the great feast of Israel's redemption. Okay, this is the birthday of Israel. It's what creates the nation. Uh, the feast is called in the book a memorial or a remembering. This word of remembering has a twofold meaning because both God and Israel engage in the act of memory. The blood that marks the doorpost is seen by God such that the angel of the Lord who remember is the visible representative of the divine splendor. Angel means messenger. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. God in declaring himself always declares himself in and through the divine logos, the one in whom the divine name exists according to the book of Exodus itself. We won't get into all this right now, but the angel of the Lord is described as a heavenly high priest. He's a minister in the heavenly sanctuary. There's a great deal of remarkable information about the Christology of the Old Testament and the intensity of the personal and concrete presence of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So it's not just a series of vague foreshadowings. Uh, Christ is present in the Old Testament as an active participant. And, footnote, the Old Testament does mention the Messiah by name in terms of actually saying Messiah uh, a good number of times. Uh, I'm reading a very interesting book on this right now, but we'll talk about that another, um, another day. But the angel of the Lord is the one who is instrumental in the night of Passover. So the angel of the Lord is the one who deals out both blessing and curse. This is what we see in the book of Judges, for example. In the book of Judges, uh, what we are reading is Israel's first shot at faithfulness under the Mosaic covenantal system. And there are seven judges throughout the book, and there are also seven manifestations of the Spirit. So in Isaiah chapter 11, when the Messiah is prophesied, the Spirit is described in seven characteristics. And if you know the narrative and the language of the book of Judges very well, you will actually recognize how blow by blow the Messianic seed described in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, and in Isaiah 7 is being described in the language used to just refer to Israel's judges on whom the Spirit rested. It's just a kind of a cool little tidbit to see how uh, the Messiah sums up the entirety of Israel's life in himself. Now, if you're not convinced that the angel of death is the angel of the Lord, the way that you're going to be convinced is to look at the story of King 
Hezekiah, and Sennacherib. Now, Sennacherib came against the city. King Hezekiah went into the temple. He beseeched God that God would act in a decisive way, that he would manifest his great name, that he would act in faithfulness to his covenant. And God, indeed, acted. There are many stories, by the way, in Christian history where this very same thing happened with equally miraculous results. For example, a storm came out of nowhere, destroyed the entire Islamic navy, wiped it out for centuries in response to the emperor calling for prayer in the city of Constantinople. So this stuff is real. I mean, God is a real, uh, real personal uh, participant in the story of the human family. Anyway, the, uh, the narrative which describes the redemption of Hezekiah's Judah and Jerusalem from the surrounding armies of Sennacherib is a narrative which is given to us in the language of Passover. And what's important is during the night, God strikes down uh, the... Some translations will render it in terms of several thousand soldiers. I think uh, probably more plausible is the translation, which renders it as something like 600 officers of Sennacherib, so he has to flee the city. But the angel of death in the book of Exodus is described here as the angel of the Lord. It's a Passover story, so the question is, who is the actor here? If Passover is being recapitulated, well, who exactly is enacting the Passover? Well, it's the angel of the Lord here. A little cool side note here, which I think is really interesting. Um, Sennacherib uh, uh, documented his victories in a stella, and he boasted with you know great pride about all of the victories, all the peoples he conquered, all of the gods he subjugated. If you read the speech that Sennacherib uh, uh, proclaims to the citizens of Jerusalem where he boasts of his great strength, how all the gods have fallen before him. Do you really think your God can protect Jerusalem? Look at just what I've done before. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Now, going through blow by blow, every one of these, he then comes to Judah and he says, and it's such a vivid description, I shut Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage. Now, this is so interesting because he is not going to spend a great deal of time or spend a great deal of money uh, and you could call it, you know, uh, political capital in producing this propagandistic work, probably not the right phrase, but the goal of this Stella is the promotion of his accomplishments in a public capacity. So it's going to be narrating his victories here, and it's going to give a positive spin on everything he's done. So you have to read between the lines. Has, he does not claim to have defeated Hezekiah. Instead, he says he shut Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage. And you read that in light of the narrative in Isaiah 36 to 39. It's also given to us in Kings. Well, the armies came against Judah and Jerusalem. They had many victories in the land of Judah. But when they got to Jerusalem, they surrounded the city. It looked like an absolutely um, uh, done day. He was going to destroy this. He was going to destroy the city. He was going to conquer the kingdom. And yet, all he can say is, "I shut Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage." Um, it's one of those uh, subtler, not so subtle, confirmations of the historicity of the Bible, including that part of the Bible which reflects divine activity in a very clear way. So, um, yeah, so it's the angel of the Lord, and 
Meredith Klein suggests that one of the words, I think it's Passa, which we often render Passover, because there are actually different words that are rendered in the language of Passover. Um, he suggests that one of them is not Passover, but cover over. And I think this is um, a convincing rendering. Now, I can't evaluate the merits of his etymological argument. What I can evaluate is the role that it plays in the book of Exodus, typologically and theologically. And so what Klein suggests is that the angel of the Lord passes through the land of Egypt. He kills those firstborn sons who were not protected by the blood marked on the doorposts. But he simultaneously acts in a protective capacity by covering over the doorposts of the Israelite, who, the Israelites or indeed the Egyptians, important point who marked the doorposts with blood. So, you know, we have to keep in mind, God has already said repeatedly that what he wants to do is to make known his name so that you may know that I am the Lord. Uh, and remember the significance of the divine name, I'm the Lord. That means he is the supreme sovereign God. He's faithful to all his promises. He is good, etc., uh, etc. Et um, the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, the name is kind of a uh, miniaturized encapsulation of everything that makes God God and everything that makes God God in relation to us. But it doesn't just say so that you know that I'm the Lord. God repeatedly says so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And we see in Pharaoh's court that his counselor said, don't you know that Egypt is destroyed? We see when they get into the land of Canaan that Rahab says, uh, the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and she is received into the nation. She's not received as a righteous Gentile. Uh, the Canaanites were peoples for whom there was no status of righteous Gentile. If you wanted to be a Canaanite, uh, but you believed in the true God, what you would do is you would join the nation. So you would abandon your, your previous national identity. Whereas if you were an Egyptian, you could retain your Egyptian national status and worship God truly and have access with a certain number of generations in between to the sanctuary system. So what is so uh, interesting and significant for me when it comes to the angel of the Lord acting in the capacity of covering over the doorposts of the Israelite homes uh, and the Egyptian homes because whether you're an Egyptian or you're an Israelite, you could put blood in your do doorpost. There were two million slaves in Egypt. This was not as if it was a big secret. Um, and Moses is already kind of actively engaging with the Egyptians. And there's a mixed multitude which goes out of Egypt with the children of Israel because the whole dang nation had been annihilated. Historically, we can see this in the uh, second intermediate period um, where the Hyksos or Amalekites come and they conquer Egypt. Uh, Maybe talk about that another day, but there's some good stuff on that. The important thing in terms of reading the text for all it's worth is that if you look at Exodus chapter 17, where Israel is thirsty, what happens is Moses is told to strike a rock, but he's told that I will stand before you, or I will stand before the rock, and then Moses is to strike the rock. Now that's a very important phrase because what we see is that Moses is symbolically speaking striking God. 
he strikes the rock of ages and it gives forth water. Notice the resonance of this in the Gospel of John, where water is given forth from the side of Jesus. Um, in the very gospel, which begins with the Torah came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus the Messiah. This is a major theme, the text of the Gospel of John. There's a whole fabric of um, Moses as Messiah terminology used in the Gospel of John. So what happens is that the angel of the Lord passing through the land of Egypt covers over the doorposts of those homes which have been marked with the blood of the lamb or the blood of the goat. And this, in a manner of speaking, is the last night of the world. It occurs at midnight. This is the hinge on which the uh, fabric of time or on which, uh, hinge on which the door of time will swing. God makes himself present in the world. The glory of God comes into the world as heaven opens up. Throughout the ten plagues, or the nine preceding plagues, God has uh, plagued the sea. He has plagued the earth, and he has plagued the heavens. The heavens have gone dark. The earth has been struck and become gnats and flies and locusts, and boils have uh, uh, infected human and beast alike and the sea is likewise infected the Nile has been turned to blood and frogs come out of it and plague the Egyptians so this is the whole kind of cosmological system you know in, in Exodus chapter 20 it says make no graven image whether it's in heaven above or uh, the earth or the sea so this heaven, earth, sea uh, structure refers to the whole of the material cosmos. Now, beyond that, there is the heaven of heavens. Uh, but when we're talking about the material creation, that's the whole shebang. So all of this has been destroyed. God's presence has flowed into the entirety of it. And has brought the world to its last night, symbolically. But, having entered into the world, and having brought it to its last night, having destroyed the entire creation by bringing a creation uh, permeated by death into contact with that which is only life, that is, the glory and splendor of God, it creates a resurrection of the dead for those who are joined to the angel of the Lord, who is present in front of the doorposts. The blood provokes God to remember the covenant that he has made with them, and the angel of the Lord stands in front of the doorposts with the blood, so that the, the homes become tombs and the doorposts become a birth canal. Now this is not as strange as you might think it is at first. Uh, if you look at birth announcements in scripture, you will find very consistently that they take place in the context of doorposts. 
when the birth of Isaac is announced, we are specifically told that Abraham's wife is by the doorpost. Uh, by the same token, when Hannah prays that her barrenness will be ended, she prays in the context of the explicit mention of a doorpost. I think Eli is standing by the doorpost. On the flip side, there's a story in the book of Kings. I don't remember which king it was, but uh, the king's wife goes to one of the Lord's prophets, and he says that as judgment, her son is going to die. Now, as soon as she exits the door, her son dies to so its death. It's a reversal of birth. And so this is Israel being born again. Born again as what? As God's firstborn son. That's the major theme that's been going on here. That God is giving birth to Israel as his firstborn son. And how is he doing so? He is doing so by means of sacrificial blood, the blood of the lamb, in conjunction with, in cooperation with, the intimate presence of the angel of the Lord, that is, the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, uh, as the one in whom his name is present and active. And the firstborn sons that are brought from the dead by their rebirth out of this architectural birth canal are holy to the Lord the next morning. So we have to remember that the election of the tribe of Levi as the priestly tribe is something which comes in Exodus 32, but the text prior to this indicates that it was the firstborn sons who held the priestly role in this pre-golden calf Israelite liturgical system. Now, later in Scripture, when you come to the Messianic Age, Jesus is going to bestow the priesthood on all twelve apostles. In other words, the golden calf sin has been turned over, it's been eradicated. And since, apparently, we're just going to be talking about a, a wide variety of kind of related subjects here, it's um, one of the most interesting uh, things for me One of the most interesting things for me is the close relationship that all of this has with this idea and this language of memory. So if you want to see a medieval theologian anticipating modern language about consciousness in a really profound way, read Nicholas Kazanis. Okay, so um, he was at the Council of Florence, he was on the Catholic side. Um, there are of course things which I, I, I don't agree with, but his philosophical articulation of consciousness is really groundbreaking in many ways, and it anticipates a lot of the language that we've come to regard as pretty routine in, uh, in contemporary philosophy of mind. Um, but the roots of this, conceptually speaking, are in Scripture, because the idea of knowledge is there throughout Exodus. It's there throughout the prophets. Know the Lord, or in the apostles, uh, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Okay, this is not just like some, like, oh, well, you know, God's brain is fizzing. There is a very strong relationship between God's knowledge of us and his sustenance of us as actually existent creatures. And by the same token, there is a very strong relationship between our knowledge of God 
and our real self-realization as an actual living real human being because the knowledge of God is the hand by which we receive the knowledge in which he constitutes us as really existent. And so in the context of the priesthood, the whole question is about bearing up the names of the sons of Israel to be remembered before the Lord. And if you're Orthodox, I want you to think in this very context when the priest goes in the great entrance, think of it as him ascending up to the throne and presence of God. He is carrying bread and wine that is symbolically representing the church. And what does he do? He commemorates names, specific names at the end of this ascent uh, of both living and dead. In the context of the Eucharist, because God remembers us in his kingdom, in his son, Jesus Christ, because everything that is named is named in the name, and the name is in the angel of the Lord, who is Christ. And Christ is incarnate in the Holy Eucharist, joined to the creation in bread and wine, and we are assimilated into that without losing our individuality and particularity in a liturgical setting. So all of these different um, you know, levels of abstraction roll together in this really elegant way, I think, in that we can talk about these highfalutin philosophical concepts. Okay? There's philosophy of mind, there's, there's the idea of consciousness and qualia, qualitative experience. Uh, there's the idea of a spectral shape, and there's the question of the existence of universals and all this stuff. And then you go to the Bible, and the Bible is dealing with blood and bones and dirt and ants and, and, and trees and crows and doves and boats and houses and circumcision and sex. And yet... They roll together when you understand the inner logic of both in such a way that to my mind really evinces the divine inspiration of scripture and the divine inspiration of the tradition which is related to scripture as its normative exegesis. Oh, sorry, microphone just dropped. So, this night is the night in which the world is almost forgotten by God. But God remembers those children who are joined to the angel of the Lord. He passes through the land of Egypt. He makes himself present in the home of the land of Egypt. But the blood which is on the doorpost constitutes a receptive hand by which he might be present to these houses in a way that is harmonious and gives them a new birth the next morning rather than a destruction on that night. So, God has in mind the children of Israel on that night. Nothing which is in the mind of God could ever cease to exist. It's supposed to be a memory eternal. It's not, we will remember you. This is for those who are not Orthodox. When someone dies, we give them a funeral. We say, memory eternal. We sing this very beautiful melody. It is about memory in the mind of God. Remember us, O Lord, in your kingdom. Because when we are in the mind of God, when we are in the mind of God through Jesus Christ, according to the gift of the Spirit who searches out the deep things of God and searches out our hearts, we are bound to the one whose very nature is existence. 
And in Exodus chapter 13, verse 3, it's not only God who remembers, but it is Israel who remembers as well. Israel, in celebrating the Passover, is to remember this day on which you came out from Egypt. God's memory of Israel is essentially his conscious, it's the language, when we use the language of consciousness to describe God's descent into the world so as to create the possibility for our, in the language of consciousness, ascent into the presence of God. Memory is linked intimately with existence and with name. Now this is the root of the theology of the Jesus prayer, by the way. If you want to look at the idea of the name of the Lord, just take a look at Exodus 33 to 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. What is the word mercy here? It's hesed in Hebrew, and hesed refers to God's total and um, total commitment with utter purity of heart to the good of his creatures. That is the inner content of the divine nature. And I'm not capturing the fullness of the concept. When we say, Lord, have mercy, we say, God, you are related to the creation after the pattern revealed in your name. And we join ourselves into that pattern and process by which you sustain the world by praying that you will act in accordance with the name you have revealed. So, Lord, have mercy. And we say, Lord, have mercy with respect to basically every aspect of created existence and created life, both mundane and unusual. Or, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the sinner. You look at Exodus 32 to 34, you will have a whole theology of the Jesus prayer in that little text. So, God remembers Israel and creates the possibility for Israel to remember God. So by the mutual interiority, or perichoresis, remember the divine persons are in each other. Jesus says about the Father, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, and he sends the Spirit so that we are in you, Jesus says, referring to himself and the Father in relation to the disciples, and you, the disciples, are in us. And Jesus prays in John chapter 17, the famous high priestly prayer, that the church will be one as we are one, that is, as the Father and the Son are one. So I think I talked about this in my interview with my brother. It is less accurate to say that there is one God than it is to say God is one. Because oneness does not describe God being the only member of his class, because God isn't a member of a class. He's ontologically sui generis. What it does to describe God's oneness is to describe the utter unity of his character. So it is a unifying oneness, and everything that exists exists in the context of that unifying oneness. So take Zechariah chapter 14. What does it say? It says, on that day, that is the day of the Lord, major theme in the book of Zechariah and in the 12 prophets as a whole, which are a single literary structure, a single set of themes, a single arc, um, narrative arc, I mean. It says, on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. 
What's the context? Well, the context is the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the Feast of Tabernacles, 70 bulls are offered corresponding to the 70 nations of the world. And the point is that God's unity, God's character as the one God, is most fully declared in the creation when it is an expansive unity. That is, it is a unity which draws in all nations into it. And it's a unity which contains within itself the necessary diversity which exists in the three divine persons of the Holy Trinity. So this is why Tower of Babel it says one language, one lip. Well, language is culture, so they build a tower and a city. The culture is the city. The lip, well, that is the instrument by which you call on a deity. If you're skeptical, just look at it in a, um, a concordance. Look at every single use of the word lip um, in, obviously, it's a Hebrew word. Uh, but, for example, Isaiah 19, it says when uh, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, they throw away their idols, they will share the same lip with Israel. Zephaniah chapter 3 says when God does his thing in the Messianic age through Israel and brings redemption to the world, well, then a pure lip will be spoken over the Jordan, in other words, by Israel and the nations alike. And what is the lip? It's the lip is that which calls on the name of the Lord. The name, the name, God's disclosure of himself, that name is a revelation of his character and it is a revelation of his unity. Because, remember as we've discussed before, every name, every quality of God's existence is absolutely coextensive with every other name, even though it's not reducible to each other. Think about it. Think about the color blue. Take the color blue. What is the color blue? Just as a kind of physical and mathematical entity, what is the color blue? If you get down to brass tacks, you are not going to be able to find it except by a regular series of intelligible relations with the whole color spectrum. Is the color blue the color yellow? Well, of course not. They're not the same thing. Well, is the distinction between blue and yellow just a distinction that we use because their minds are limited? No, of course not. Uh, they are not the same thing. Well, is blue just a part of the color white? Well, that's an interesting question because you take white light, you split it open, and it turns into a plenitude of colors. In fact, there are an infinite number of subtleties that you can get there you know, by the same principle that you get an infinite quantity of real numbers. Um, there's an infinite subtlety of shade that you can get. But it's not a fraction of the white light, even though it can be split into multiple really distinct colors. It's a fascinating um, kind of kind of existence uh, where these distinct things, these distinct qualities, are genuinely and really distinct. They're not just synonyms for each other. Nevertheless, each of them requires the other for their own internal character. And so that is why God's name is the principle by which the creation is drawn into himself. And it is why the name bringing about that unity takes place in a liturgical context. Remember what I said about 
God's descent creates the ability for us to ascend. So, why is it that we can have the name of the Lord on our lips? What does it say in Genesis chapter 4? It says, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, this has nothing to do with them learning, you know, the just the mere sequence of sounds which made up the Tetragrammaton. That's an absurdly trivial reading of the text. No, it has to do with the qualities which are revealed in that name. So at the head of the genealogy of Genesis 11, you have Shem. Shem is a personal name, which means, what do you know? Name. Shem's rivals at the Tower of Babylon try to make a name for themselves, but God promises Shem's heir, Abraham, a great name. And in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And how does he respond? He builds God an altar. An altar is a miniature holy mountain. God descends to Abraham. He makes him the series of promises. His character is revealed in those promises. He proclaims his name to Abraham. And then Abraham responds by repeating God's name back to him. And that dialogue is what we call communion. Okay, so I'm writing a whole paper on Exodus right now, which is why I'm kind of, you know, focusing so, so closely on, on this. Um, but take the intimacy of Moses' knowledge of God. Okay, so we know the phrase, Moses knew God face to face, as a man knows his friend. Now, very interestingly, in the book of Numbers, this very same phrase is used, except it is not, literally speaking, face-to-face. -face, it is mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. Likewise, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 describes the state in which the redeemed Israel will exist once God circumcises the heart. And what does God say? God says, the word, that is the word, which is the Torah, is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you should do it. Okay, so the word of God is that which discloses his character, just, and it's often used actually to refer to the hypostasis of the angel of the Lord, take Genesis 15, for example. Um, it's not the only text by far that you could cite in that. The word of the Lord is often revealed in a vision, which is interesting if you just think it means God's speech. Um, the word of the Lord is the uh, qualities insofar as they are communicated intelligibly to mankind. So what is the word of the Lord? Well, the word of the Lord is his name. The name sums up all his qualities. And when those qualities are spoken out in a way that is meant to be intelligible, um, when it is sent to mankind with this particular end in mind, we call that name the word. So the angel of the Lord, what do you know? My name is in him. So the unification of the human family takes place through God's disclosure of who he is to mankind, through revelation, that is, he makes his presence known, through the reception of that revelation in what we call knowledge, know the Lord, this is a personal knowledge that can also be given an intellectual um, apprehension, an intellectual form, which we call kind of philosophical theology, called knowing the Lord. It is the active contemplation and perpetuation of that knowledge through time, which we call remembering. 
Okay, And in order for us to remember God, God has to first remember us. And altogether, this facilitates the presence of the name of the Lord in creation and specifically in the human family so that the name which is in the angel of the Lord also comes to dwell in us. And because we are created after the image of God, that name becoming interior to us makes us fully human as well as real participants in the life of the divine. So, we're going to cut off there. And this actually went in a direction that I wasn't expecting. Um, it kind of almost stands as an independent video in its own right, though it will be part of this larger series. Um, but I want to kind of wrap up here by talking about the narrative role that the name of the Lord plays in the early chapters of Genesis. Okay, so in order to get what I'm saying, you got to understand that the word called uh, is verbally paired with the word for name. Okay, so I, as far as I know, um, I checked earlier today, as far as I know, they're not etymolo etymologically related or, and they don't sound similar, but they're paired with each other. So just think of the word for end and the word for beginning. Um, this is an analogy. Uh, the words beginning and end, these two words are paired with each other. They are understood to go together, even though they're not etymologically related and even though they don't sound alike. Nevertheless, we do understand that they do have a certain association with each other, such that when we invoke one word, the other is present in a kind of implicit capacity. So that's the kind of uh, precondition for understanding what I'm going to talk about when I when I when I go into this go to the early chapters of Genesis uh, we see God's creative work in Genesis chapter 1 is his shaping things and his naming of things uh, at what Adam does in Genesis 2 is essentially reading the names which God has endowed on an inner level to the creatures of the world and Adam reads them and speaks them back to God so there we see this dialogue that occurs and it is necessary for the glorification of the human family and for the perfection of mankind as man. And by perfection, I mean kind of development, maturation, inhumanity, so on and so forth. It is necessary for this to occur that there be a creature like Adam who has the capacity to engage in an interpersonal dialogue. And this interpersonal dialogue, this speaking of names to each other, we call this language. This is a fancy, idiosyncratic way of talking about language. Um, uh, this, uh, this partner whom God creates is Eve. Adam gives Eve a name. And the first thing that Eve does the first thing that she speaks is a contemplation on the commandment of God. So, God wants man to grow in wisdom. Man does grow in wisdom because he creates a partner for man who is not identical with him, but is one man. She sees things from a different perspective. She has a different mode of being human, and the two are complementary and must uh, be united to one another in order for each to be truly who and what. They are, uh, but when we go to Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, we'll have a whole video on, on what's actually going on here, but the serpent asks, has God said, um, you, might, you can't eat any tree of the garden? And what Eve says is, she says, no, 
We can eat of all the trees of the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil, neither shall we touch it. Now, some people have said, oh, well, Eve is adding to the word of God, but that's, that's not a correct interpretation. Uh, what's actually going on is Eve is reflecting the capacity that language has to draw out the implications of a particular truth. This is what God wants mankind to do. Okay, God wants mankind to grow up and receive the keys to the whole cosmos. Now to do that, mankind has to grow up into the wisdom to intuitively know what is good, what is right in a particular situation. Is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, that's the tree which endows you with the wisdom if you receive it in a fit spiritual state, it endows you with the wisdom to know whether a certain action is going to be good in relation to a particular end. Let's say you want to build a house. You want to build a house. It's got to have a certain uh, shape to it. Well, is pine good or is pine evil? In other words, is pine wood right for the job? That's the kind of wisdom and knowledge which is being conferred here. Now, to eventually grow up and understand that, you have to have, first, a language which makes it all intelligible, and you have to have a dialogue going on with other human beings who think differently so that you can ping ideas off each other and grow into the wisdom to understand the inner structure of those ideas, which, oh, by the way, maps onto the inner structure of the creation. Now, when Eve says, neither shall you touch it, is she actually saying anything wrong? No. Is she saying anything silly? No. Actually, it's a really great idea. Those things that God has forbidden, you shouldn't try to get as close as possible without technically going over the line. That is the spiritual principle which is embodied here. And the spiritual principle is embodied in much more detail in the ritual laws of Leviticus, where those things which are unclean to eat also will make you unclean if you touch them. So those things you can't eat, you must not touch. It's a very useful spiritual principle, one which we are consistently um, susceptible to ignoring. So, person grows up in wisdom through the contemplation that occurs in dialogue both with God. God reveals his name to us in whom all names exist. We speak back God's name to him. Remember, God self kind of, uh, God manifests himself in distinct modes by creating a variety of animals. And these distinct modalities are uh, signified by the distinctive sets of characteristics which are embodied in the distinct names of the animals. So when God creates these animals, and then Adam names them. Adam is, after a fashion, calling on the name of the Lord. So the, the idea of names is running through the text here. And we go to Genesis 4, and what was, at this point, relatively speaking, implicit about liturgy becomes much more explicit. Adam and Eve, they go down the uh, slope of Mount Eden, there is a sealed gate uh, guarded by two cherubim. This corresponds in the temple to Yaakin and Boaz, not, by the way, to the two cherubim in the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies. Those two cherubim in the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies, they wouldn't be guarding the doorpost of the Garden of Eden. Okay? They would be right at the center. So those um, 
the olive wood angels, they signify the divine council. They don't uh, signify the guardians uh, of the Garden of Eden. In any case, uh, what's going on here is that at the cutting off of the year, at harvest time, the uh, children of Adam present their gifts from the world to God, their tribute offering. Things go wrong, and it spirals rather out of control. But the theme which runs through here is a development in the names of the sons of Adam. Adam and Eve are godlike insofar as they endow their children with names, and I want you to pay attention to the meaning of the names Abel and Cain. Abel means mist, or um, it means vapor. So you go to Ecclesiastes when Solomon says everything is meaningless. That's a bad translation. It's instead everything is vapor. You don't get to decide what the ultimate significance of one of your actions is going to be. You might build the greatest palace that has ever been built, and a storm might come through next year and uh, totally destroy it, and you'll say, well, why did God let me waste my time on that? But it might just be that a person who worked on that building encountered someone else who was also working on the building who radically changed his life for the better. And so the purpose that you thought you had in uh, arranging this construction work might be utterly different from its actual purpose that God was pressing out. That's what it means in uh, Ecclesiastes when Solomon will say everything is vapor. It's about the sovereignty of God and our need to trust God. But Adam and Eve, they are the images of God and say exercise their divine um, reflection in part through the multiplication of human beings. You know, it is godlike to create an image of God and Adam and Eve and their conjugal relation produce new images of God or new members of the image of God, understanding that image of God is, of course, a corporate organism. It's the human family writ large, not individual human being per se. But it is a new heavens and a new earth. God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Adam is the generations of the heavens and the earth. He's the son of the spirit of life and the dust of the ground. And Cain and Abel, well, the name Cain uh, refers to things that are from the ground. And Abel means a vapor or it's this kind of mist which ascends on its way to heaven. And likewise, we see that what goes on in their respective um, you know, daily labor is that Cain harvests stuff from the ground, but Abel guards, he is a guarder of sheep. Okay, so Abel is the one who manages the sacrificial system by which mankind ascends to God. So the naming here, here concerns the inner qualities of the persons and when the city of Cain is founded, cities are good, but not when they're founded before their time, the progression in the names of the various descendants of Cain reflects the progression in wickedness. Uh, we find that the meaning of one name as it transitions to the next, I recommend reading James Jordan on this, indicates a growth in violence that is developing uh, through the generations. And yet, at the end of the story, we have a, uh, we look back chronologically, we see that Seth is born, and Seth begins to call on the name 
of the Lord. Now, it's this calling on the name of the Lord which is eventually going to bring God into the world in such a way that it's going to collapse in on itself in the flood. Because remember what it said. The blood of your brother is crying to me from the land. And then in Genesis chapter 6, we're told the whole earth was filled with violence. The sons of God went to daughters of men. They produced perverse giants who were mighty men or conquerors who went out into the world and shed much blood, binding the world together in one political organism, but by violence. And so the blood which began to cry from the land in the era of Cain cried all the louder in the time of Noah. But such cries would go utterly unheard unless God was being made present in the creation. And God is made present in the creation through his image bearers when they speak his name. So Seth proclaimed or called upon the name of the Lord. Both of them are legitimate translations. And as God descended to Adam, giving him the knowledge which enabled him and his children to worship him truly, so also Seth ascends back up to God, which then facilitates the reciprocal descent again of God. And we see this process going on until the seventh generation. Enoch actually ascends into heaven. But the presence of God in the world, which renews the face of the ground, the flood is a flood of, it's a holy water bath. It's a baptism of the world. Noah is exalted to the top of the holy mountain. Noah offers an ascension offering. Noah rests. Noah means rest. Lots of puns on his and wordplay on his name and on rest throughout the text, we see that the destiny of the creation is tied together very closely with the role that the name of the Lord has within the creation. And we see that the name of the Lord within the creation comes to be engraved on its stuff through human agency. But note in Genesis chapter 5, the closeness with which these themes are bound up. Uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, he blessed them, and named them man. Okay? Man is the name of this organism, the human family. Genesis 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named himself. So sonship and image bearing are closely connected. God names man and Adam names Seth and then Seth names the Lord. And then uh, at the head of the genealogy of Genesis 11, Shem is named. This is the bloodline through which the name of the Lord is proclaimed and into which all nations are gathered by that name which unifies all mankind in that name, so that, Zechariah 14, the Lord shall be one, and his name is one. So name, memory, liturgy, Passover, all of these things, roll them together in your mind, keep them together, understand that where one is present, the others usually are not too far behind. This kind of is based on the discussion uh, I had 
when I started making videos again on biblical grammar. The essence of biblical grammar is not this or that teaching, but understanding which ideas are related more or less closely to which other ideas, because they're not always intuitive to the modern mind. The example I think I gave was when you think of a tower, it, the first thing you think of generally is not ladder to heaven, right? And if you think of a ladder to heaven, the first thing you think of is generally not a tree. You think of a house, the first thing you generally think of is not, I'm living inside a tree. But in reality, uh, a lot of houses are tree houses. You're living inside a tree. I mean, you we take it, we rework it, we structure it, uh, we we build it architecturally into a more splendid and glorious form. But you know, strictly speaking, a house which is made out of wood, hey, you're living inside a tree, and that's that's perfectly great. That's fine. Um, and there's a whole symbolic kind of uh, logic to that, which has its own kind of. Uh, you open it up and you find it generates organically and just naturally a distinctive way of understanding the role of God and God's providence in the world. So uh, that pretty much wraps up the subject of the video, but I, I, I just want to finish this thought. Um, I've mentioned it before, but on the idea of you take anything in creation and you think about it in light of Scripture, or let's just say there's one scriptural passage which talks about it. If you're familiar with the logic of the whole of Scripture and how everything in Scripture hangs together, you can take one passage about some p particular sort of creature in the world, say an ostrich mentioned in Job. Develop a theology of the ostrich. You can see everything in terms of the life of the ostrich. Because reality is one, and God, being the existent one, is perfectly unified in his character. Everything implies everything else. And it's going to be present implicitly in the life of the creation as well. So you take an ostrich. If you understand the ostrich comprehensively, you're going to have a whole ostrich grammar, which is going to give you genuine and real insight onto God, onto the world, and onto one's relationship with God. But I don't know how to give you the theology of the ostrich. I do know a little bit, though, about how to talk about God as the divine beekeeper. If you haven't seen it already, I really do recommend... Uh, that you watch a video by a beekeeper talking about a hive of killer bees and the process by which he decided to d completely destroy the hive. And it's a, it's, a, it's a really wonderful and profound parable. It, this wasn't in his mind. He didn't mention this at all. But it's a, it's a parable that is written in creation about the way that God deals with us because God wants to draw from us splendor and glory and sweetness and honey. And we are created as an organism. None of us are individuals isolated from everyone else. Just like the hive is intrinsically an organism. Uh, there are individual bees, but the subjects according to which life flows through the whole is the beehive. And it's only in that hive that honey is produced, which is the end goal of the project. But killer bees you know, first make an appearance there, and it gradually spreads throughout the culture, as it were, of the hive. And the beekeeper starts getting attacked. The bees start attacking maybe other beehives, other animals that are on the property. The whole order of the beekeeper's home is disrupted as the killer bees 
are aggressive and seek their own good at the expense of everybody else. So what's really, what was really striking to me was the way in which he tried every other option besides destroying the beehive. Requeening, uh, you know, a lot of other obscure stuff that I don't remember because I'm not a beekeeper, but there's lots of options that he took before deciding to destroy the beehive. The thing with requeening, if, they, if he requeened the hive, which sometimes works, would change the culture of the hive, but you change, it's a change in leadership, it changes the culture of that which is being led, but if the problem is bad enough, they will kill the new queen. You know, it reminds me of the parable that Jesus speaks about, uh, the parable of the, the tenants in the vineyard. Uh, God sends prophet after prophet, and they kill each of them, and then he, and God says, they will respect my son, surely the heir of the household, but they kill him and try to take the inheritance for themselves. Uh, the parable is present in the actual concrete life of the beehive. I'm not saying this is present in a scriptural text about a beehive. I'm saying God has written this into the creation. Um... And at the end of the video, you know, there was palpable sorrow in his face about having to destroy the beehive. Uh, nevertheless, when the decision was made, he did so um, without, you know, breaking down. He did what he had to do, and after the beehive had been destroyed and all the bees therein were dead, uh, balance and harmony had been restored to <laughs> the land on which he lived. So... Uh, just a little uh, suggestion on maybe one way that we can see the whole divine economy through something as mundane and peculiar as bees and beekeeping. Uh, so I thank you for uh, watching slash listening to this video. Um, I've enjoyed making it. It really wasn't what I intended it to be at first, but hey, you know, it is what it is. Um, uh, so I will see you uh, tomorrow.